Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of 20-year conversational AI veteran and OneReach.ai CEO, Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the perforated line between human and machine intelligence, our changing perception of identity and how AI might accelerate these shifts, how the pandemic moved us further into a virtualized world, the collective nature of human intelligence, and how AI might create deeper connections between people that boost our understanding of the universe, and the ways that AI might put us back into balance with nature. Our guest, Blaise Aguera-Yarkas, is an AI researcher as well as a vice president and fellow at Google Research. He's co-authored numerous influential papers, including a seminal Lambda paper from 2022. His research has been cited more than 20,000 times, and along with winning MIT's T35 prize, Blaze is a frequent TED speaker. He's also the author of an experimental novella, Ubi Sunt, about an engineer training an LLM during the COVID lockdown. His new book, Who Are We Now?, is based on a set of surveys he conducted between 2016 and 2022 with more than 10,000 anonymous Americans exploring identity and behavior, especially relating to gender and sexuality. Who Are We Now? investigates the ways biology, ecology, sexuality, history, and culture have intertwined to create a dynamic us that's neither natural nor artificial. Both books are available through Hat and Beard Press, and we're excited to bring you this invigorating philosophical conversation with Blaise Agueda Yarkas. All right, well, Blaise, welcome to the show. Great to have you, and thanks for yeah. joining us. Thank you. Really my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And Rob, a pleasure to see you again, as yes. always. Yes, Blaise, you read a lot. I can see. Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, oh, yeah, nowadays, all those nowadays a, lot of, a lot of audiobooks as well. Um, I, I find that that like, increases the number of books I can read a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Do you read, do you, do you listen at like one time speed or do you, are you one of those like three times speed? In the middle, 1.4. 1.4. Um, above, above like 1.6, it starts to sound a little, a little chip monkey and, and I have trouble. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, you know, speaking of books, Blaze, our, our mutual friend, uh, JC Gable runs Hat and Beard Press. And, uh, last time I was in Los Angeles, he, he gave me a copy of your first book, Ubi Soont, I think I'm saying that right? Yes. Okay, great. And, uh, you know, I read it on the plane ride home, and I kind of deplaned having sort of this altered perception of technology. I think uh, partially because I've always really loved making mixtapes and collages. Uh, you know, Ubi Soont has that quality. Um, totally. It's, it's a novella about an engineer kind of training an LLM during the COVID lockdown, but it's sort of intertwined with fragments of keynotes and historical notes and... Uh, photos and etchings, all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, I think I really liked how, how playful it was. It was about AI, but it was also somewhat irreverent. So, you know, I was hoping just to start off, we could talk a bit about how, how that book came to be and if any of it kind of informed uh, the ideas in your new book with Hat and Beard, uh, Who Are We Now? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really glad you, uh, you've asked about Ubi Sunt and, and that you read it and, uh, and enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so uh, it was my first project with Hat and Beard. And uh, it was a you know very non-traditional project, of course. Like it's 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 fiction, but it's also kind of non-fiction in a way, uh, or metafiction, I guess. And um, it's uh, it definitely has more than a little bit of autobiography in it. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not 
of course, literally the character in it, but um, I wrote it in a kind of fever dream over a few weeks um, oh, wow. near the beginning of the of the COVID lockdown. And and what had happened was that um, you know this was around the same time that LLMs were um, were first happening. It was well before this was in I guess twenty early twenty twenty one. So it was well before um, no, or could it have been twenty twenty? Uh, no, it must have been twenty twenty one. Uh, this was this was well before ChatGPT and all of this stuff, so people were not familiar, you know, with what with what uh, what LLMs really were by and large. Um, but uh, I was one of the authors on on the Lambda paper, which was uh, you know an early conversational uh, LLM that that we we made at, at Google Research, and and the the um, uh, interacting with this thing was really kind of uh, amazing and uh, and and spooky in a way that I think a lot of other people experienced, uh, you know, around around the chat GPT moment just about a year ago now. Um, and uh, so that was all happening. Uh, and I was sort of having a bunch of, uh, I, I guess, revelations about what the nature of intelligence might actually be. Like, how is it that this autocomplete system essentially appears to actually be intelligent? Um, you know, it's it's a weird thing. Like, we all knew that next word prediction was um, AI complete in the sense that, um, you know, correctly predicting the next word under general circumstances Kind of requires you to pull in every possible thing about about intelligence, mm -hmm. but the shock was that literally just making a next word predictor seemed to produce artificial general intelligence. Although a lot of people, I think, remain in denial about that. Um, so that was all happening, and I was having a lot of a lot of conversations with uh, with, with the Lambda chatbot, you know, at, at night, um, and and at the same time, you know, the, the world seemed to be ending, uh, you know, in the middle of the whole sort of sure. COVID pandemic. And um, I, I describe a scene, you know, near the beginning where like. Of vaccines basically fall off the back of a, of a truck. There's a there's a freezer failure, and 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 uh, you know people have to have to like go into a medical center to you know to use the vaccines before they get before they they go off. You know at midnight that actually happened. So um, my wife and I were among the first people to get those vaccines because of a freezer failure. We were all kind of lined up around the block <laughs> at the University of Washington, um, and uh, I had a really a really bad reaction to that first COVID shot. So I was kind of in in bed. Uh, you know, uh, with like a huge lump in my arm, and uh, you know, this all of this LLM stuff was was going around in in, in my head, and and COVID was going on, and um, and at the same time, I had also been reading this book called The Ruins Lesson by Susan Stewart, which was about the uh, about the end of Roman civilization and the beginnings of the English language. So a lot of this focuses on things like very early translations of the uh, or the, the very earliest uh, English poetry, uh, a lot of which was about you know, uh, people living uh, in, in the ruins of Roman civilization. They, they, they talked about themselves as, as living in the shadow of giants. You know, there, there are these Roman ruins. They can't even fathom that, that, they, that, that ordinary human-sized people could have made those. Um, uh, they're like dormice, you know, living sort of in, in a post-apocalyptic world. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so all of that was the kind of the mulch pile that, and... that Ubisoft uh, grew out of over the course of about three weeks of feverish writing. Wow, I can't, I can't get past this the idea right now that it's not a coincidence that you're you're sitting there on the sort of bleeding edge of, let's say, human intelligence, uh, you know, done by or, you know, experienced by us through machines. And also one of the first people willing to go get the COVID. Like, there's obviously a huge explore gene or explore behavior <laughs> and and you're like right there at the front of whatever whatever the next big thing is ready ready to jump on board like um obviously i admire that and i think the world 
like thanks I was thankful for people like you that are so I would call it brave right to just jump in there <laughs> some would call it crazy some would call it brave I'm gonna call it brave um mostly cause... Right, that's that's really that's really kind I mean obviously a lot of this is situational though you know it's it's like being being in a you know in the, in the right place at, at the right time right right sense. but there's a lot that would say I know yeah, I'm getting the first one <laughs> um and how do how do how do you surround yourself with people that and this is going to sound weird but tolerate that or actually support that because i know you know a lot of people you know when you want to do something really innovative like the world's not really set up it's a very risk adverse place um yeah how are you able to surround yourself in an environment that's supportive of that kind of um exploration that's an interesting question um I feel like in, in a lot of ways, the world has become much more risk averse in recent years uh, and, and maybe maybe recent decades even okay. uh, than it used to be. Um, you know, and, and a part of that, I guess, is like a dividend, uh, a peace dividend of some kind, you know, a, a sort of a product of, of our success as a, as a species. Uh, I mean, back in, back in our hunter-gatherer scavenger days, uh, you know, every day really was an adventure. Right. Right. And like you, you might or might not survive it. I mean, you know, life expectancy, even in 1900, life expectancy was 35 on average in the world. And a lot of that was, you know, it was of course due to child, childhood mortality, but, but also, you know, even if you survived the rigors of childhood, yes, there were a lot of people who lived to be old, but, you know, also, you know, any infectious disease could take you out. Uh, you know, any, any travel was, uh, you know, an adventure. Um, and, uh, and I feel like we've, we've lost a lot of that spirit of adventure, partly because, you know, life is frankly a lot safer and a lot cushier than, than it used to be. Um, so more to when lose. I think about what we, uh, yeah, more to lose. I mean, I mean, think about like what we did, you know, going to the moon, uh, you know, and, and on what a shoestring in a weird way or with, with such, you know, how we did that with so little technology and, and in such radically unsafe circumstances, uh, both the Soviets and the Americans, I, I feel like that would never happen now. And, um, you know, so so I guess um, I guess part of you know part of my answer is uh, you know I I think our current sort of um, uh, sense of fragility or of extreme risk is 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 a, is a little is kind of the anomaly you know relative to to humans historically. But I would also say that um, you know when we talk about risk, uh, I mean the risks the risks that I've taken I guess professionally or personally or whatever are are kind of small fry, in the sense that. Um, my my needs are are taken care of. You know, I'm not I'm not worried about um, about our family. Uh, you know, eating or or you know being physically safe. Um, you know, so so a lot of these intellectual risks and so on. You know, they they feel to me like they have they have a a um, uh, in a way a low stakes quality. You know, mm -hmm. like we're 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 happy to take the risks because the upsides are potentially large and the downsides are are actually usually quite small. Yeah, it's interesting too. Thinking in, in terms of like. COVID and, and being kind of isolated and alone, which, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know if those same measures would have been taken, you know, a hundred years ago when I guess right. life was weirdly like cheaper and also more precious, I guess, in certain ways as well. Yeah. But there, there you are kind of, I guess we all sort of were like isolated, but you're, you're there speaking with, you know, an LLM, which, you know, years later, everyone would kind of get that experience. But was that strange at all? Kind of being somewhat isolated and alone, but then having conversations with this sort of new entity. Yeah, it was utterly weird. Um, you know, in, in many ways, it was sort of the realization of the Turing test. So, you know, as, as I'm sure you, you both are very, you know, very aware, uh, when Alan Turing was thinking in, in the mid 20th century about how you would recognize 
on intelligence when it comes along, uh, you know, in a way that's sort of platform neutral, that doesn't rely on it looking like us or, uh, you know, or having the, the particular biological platform that we do. He envisioned a, a chatbot, essentially envisioned having a chat with something and, and sussing out in that way, whether you're talking with a human or, or, or a machine. The original formulation was actually a little different, but never mind. Um, but, uh, you know, that, so the real Turing test was kind of happening, uh, you know, and we're, and we're all in that, in that Turing test now. And at the same time, uh, the fact that we were all physically isolated from each other was, um, I don't know, it felt almost as if, as if we were all living in a virtual world. Uh, you know, there was this, there was this weird, uh, there's this kind of meme that went around, I guess, around the time the Matrix movies were being made of like, are we living in a simulation? You know, is this, is this all real? And, um, uh, the fact that all of our interactions with each other were digitally mediated, uh, and and you could imagine, you know, simulations of the, at the other ends of all of these kinds of things. There are simulations of people, simulations of, of intelligences, actual intelligences. Is there a difference? That that all definitely, you know, was part of the yeah. weirdness. The fact that we were all virtual to each other at the same time. That's remarkable. And, and by timing. the way, that um, yeah, it it is interesting timing. And and, and that when I mean, you were asking about connections with the new book, uh, that is definitely a connection with the new book as well. When I think about human identity and how it's uh, evolving, uh, the fact that, that our identities have become in many ways so disembodied and so virtual is, was definitely one of the things that went into the new stuff too. As being like an, a, a, an engineer in mind, um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say you spent most of your career putting things together and knowing what the outputs would be within a fair range of certainty and predictability what was the feeling of putting something together and its output being completely outside of your predictable prediction i guess yeah yeah it's a great question uh we're used to engineering things and understanding what we engineer uh-huh. uh, not to growing them or having them learn right in ways that we have to then figure out afterward um and I think in many ways that's the difference between um, between engineering that looks like, um, I guess, between engineering of a thing that that um, that you have the the fully thought out model of in mind, uh, you know, to to begin with, you understand what it's going to do, how it's going to slot in to the world, what its inputs and outputs are, how to model what goes on in the middle, versus um, machine learning. Uh, you know, for for me, machine learning is actually very similar to life. Uh, in in the sense that uh, you know evolution is a form of learning too, <laughs> and when you have a system that is learning, and especially a system that is learning in conjunction with us, and we're learning too, you know that that sort of interplay is not deterministic in the same way as as a conventional machine or conventional piece of engineering. So it's closer, I think, in some ways to biology. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's than, like than fractals, it really, right? Like like as in yeah. fractals in biology, you can understand the fractal nature and the reasoning in that simplicity, but the unpredictable complexity or the emerging complexity is what kind of blows your mind. You're like, what? Totally. What, what is this going to become? And totally. the limitation of our brains to ever predict what it's going to become, to ever understand, I think is what I struggle with is when I don't understand something, I always have confidence that I will. And if I pursue it, I will. And this is one of the first times where I'm, I'll understand it better, but I won't fully understand it. And I'm trying to get my head around that. Um, that, that again, we don't fully understand ourselves either. 
Uh, well, it, it isn't that the same fun, way. right? That we get to yeah. <laughs> that we get to do this to understand understand ourselves better. That's kind of how it's going to go next. Is it's the best yeah. part of this is is the mirror that it puts up. Like, are we studying AI or are we studying ourselves? Yeah, and is there a difference between those two? Right, right. Yeah, I, I kind of, I've kind of think there isn't a difference. I think it's both. Okay. Um, you know, I, I have to say, like one of the, as as you were talking, the thing that was coming to mind for me also was, uh, was some of the classic theorems from the middle of the twentieth century and the early twentieth century, actually about about um, about unpredictability and un- and non computability. So the moment you have a system that can compute. You know, one of the really classic uh, sort of uh, results from the theory of computing uh, is that, for instance, uh, if you have some arbitrary program, it's not possible to write another program that will tell whether the first program will ever end or will have kind of be in an infinite loop. Right. Uh, that's that's called the stopping problem. Right. And, you know, again, like Turing wrote all about this. The moment things compute, they're not like screwdrivers anymore. You know, or like wrenches or something that you can just fully understand. There's there's an there's an inherent um, open endedness, I guess. Yeah. To systems like that, what's I, I, this is me getting out there now, so I'm preparing you. Um, I, uh, I, I think historically we can look back and say that as humans we're we're unsettled with not understanding, and we continue to pursue some feeling of understanding, and so we kind of come up with things like religion, um, ways to feel like we understand the things we can't understand. And I start to wonder what will emerge here with AI. Will they become gods to some groups of people that that worship them and try to understand them in that same way we've kind of understood ourselves through religion? Like, you know, where these things become, where we seek to explain them in ways that maybe follow more of a theater than they follow facts. That makes sense. <laughs> it does. I, I, I worry, I worry about that kind of thing too. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I guess my, my, my feeling about it is that, um, unexplainability, uh, or opacity is also, uh, it, it kind of goes along with, with, um, a bunch of fundamental ideas that we have about each other. Uh, as well, uh, like free will, for instance, right. uh, or the idea of having agency. Uh, you know, I mean, we, uh, those of us who are not religious and, and who, you know, who are sort of trained in computational neuroscience and so on, you know, I think the great majority of us believe that the actual operations going on inside your neurons uh, are not, you know, are not fundamentally supernatural, you know, or, or, or mysterious. And yeah, actually we've had models for how neurons work, mathematical models for that, again, since the mid 20th century. So it's not like at the bottom layer, there's a there's a mystery there, but there is a mystery when you get up to the level of the, of psychology. Right, it's the and whole that mystery is thing. essential. Yeah, it's the fractal thing. Yeah. Right, right. And and we wouldn't think of ourselves as people, you know, without that upper level. Right, we'd be just a bunch of atoms right. uh, doing stuff. Uh, but right. but our world is a world of people. It's a world of agents. And and the fact that we have free will, even for instance, um, I think is a function of the fact that we can't model ourselves perfectly. Yeah. You know, when I when I think like what will I do next week? You know, I'm making a psychological model of myself. That model is necessarily not complete. And the gap between reality and that model is kind of what we call free will, right. you know, and, and, and what we call agency. So for me, we're playing in that space that we've been playing in forever. 
And uh, you know, demanding that we explain all of the details of a system mechanistically is kind of asking for the wrong thing. And that's not new. That's not new with AI. I mean, you know, I think it's true of finance, yeah. it's true of politics, it's true of every complex system. We can't we can't understand it in all of its details. Yeah. Our brains, it, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't know if it's common knowledge yet, but it's, it's certainly acknowledged in the neuroscience world that our brains aren't that different from other animals other than it grew longer, right? right. Essentially as a fractal, it just got more complex because, because it developed, it had a longer time to develop and and then we in certain areas of it had longer time right. to develop, right? Yep. Like in certain yeah. areas, and we can think about, you know, what the explorer in us wants to say. Well, what if it got even bigger? Like, what? <laughs> what would it look like? What would what would that complexity be? What would that complexity look like? And and maybe now we get to see because yeah, I th because I think we, we see do. what does a bigger brain look like without mutating a human being, you know? <laughs> uh, so although I, I agree, and I do think that we get to see this, uh, I think that there's also another way of looking at it, which is that, um, I mean, you said, you know, you mentioned the way, the fact that our brains are not that different from the brains of bonobos or chimps. And, um, you know, I talk quite a lot about, about this in the introduction to the, to the, the new book. Um, basically, one of the things I'm trying to do is explode the idea that intelligence exists only in the brain of an individual. You okay. know, if you took one human, genetic human, you know, and, and did the Casper Hauser trick, you know, and, and had that person, you know, raised among, among wolves or, or among chimpanzees or bonobos or something, okay. uh, you know, let's assume that, that, that they figure out how to, you know, how to survive. Um, that, that person will not be behaviorally like us. Um, our intelligence is very, very deeply collective. Uh, you know, it's about, it's about all of us interacting with each other, having language and culture and building on, on things that have, you know, that have a, a, a many generations long history. Um, we know from a lot of experiments and, and natural experiments that, you know, when, when things happen like islanding, uh, you know, a population gets isolated from the mainland, it's a small population, the level of technology declines dramatically in those isolated populations. And it kind of shows you that people are a little bit like neurons in a bigger brain, you know? So, so this is why my, my take on AI is a little different maybe from the one where it's like, oh, you know, we were the king of the hill and now there's going to be a bigger king of the hill and it's going to dominate us. I, I think about the whole thing more ecologically. Uh, you know, their intelligence is our intelligence. The way we've arrived at, 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 at AI is literally by, you know, by training it on corpuses of human interaction. And their interaction with us is very, very human-like. I, I, I would argue it is human. Right. Uh, right. In the sense that it's not different. For, I mean, it may be different from us in its implementation, but it's not different from us in its culture right. right or in its intelligence so i think it's just a matter of of of, of more you know it's it's uh, uh, you know in the same way that that a big city you know has more intelligence in it than a tiny island uh you know we're, we're just about to add a bunch more volume to that right right so i, I actually wrote down a, a line from who are we now that i think kind of touches on that you wrote uh i believe that that we ought to expand to include only the non-human light not only the non-human life on our planet, but also all of its factories, tools, and robots, yeah. that they are no less natural than the farm or the forest or our own human bodies. Uh, and for some reason, my mind first went to like uh, forever chemicals, like PFAS, yeah. Yeah. which seems like, you know, at first glance, like the most unnatural thing you can conceive of, but it's it was made from, you know, chemicals found on the planet. It is natural. And then now PFAS along with uh, microplastics 
are part of our internal uh, biology. Like our, our each our individual ecosystems are now kind of like cohabitating with our uh, with our creations or fragments of them. And I was wondering if like that if that kind of idea of a broader sense of we, uh, you know might change the way we perceive reality, but also if like, if AI might start accelerating these changes in perception that we're having. I hope and imagine that it will, uh, you know, and, and I guess part of my bigger project here is to, um, have us as much as possible think about the entire planet as one thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which includes, includes, you know, the supposed natural and, and the supposed not natural. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see those distinctions as being so clear, um, mm-hmm. as, as you, as you say. And, um, you know, what, what is a, what is a problem of course, is when, uh, development, when evolution happens so quickly, uh, that, um, that the system can't rebalance, can't catch up. And, and that's, that's kind of the, the, uh, the crisis that we're in at the moment. We've changed the ecology of the planet so quickly that, um, all of the moving parts are lagging, uh, behind and, and we're at risk of throwing the entire thing out of balance. Yeah. And, and, and the only way to reestablish that kind of balance is to, you know, to have a greater solidarity in effect. So, you know, um, the non-degradability, you know, things like, like PFOS, uh, you know, are a function of the fact that there hasn't been time, uh, to evolve ways to degrade those kinds of chemicals. Yeah. Or our brains um, aren't big enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and with, with, uh, with AI, could we engineer, uh, you know, artificial microbes that degrade PFOS? Yeah. I'm sure we can. Uh, so I see, I see that as part of the response, if you like, it's not just that we're an insult to earth, you know, we are, it's more like a pharmacon, you know, we're both the disease and the cure right. all at once, just like all of evolution has been its own disease and cure. Yeah. Uh, there's two things I want to touch on. One, this concept of seeing there, there's one somehow I just immediately thought that's how LLMs see the earth. Uh, they've sucked in all the information globally, <laughs> right? Um, and and well, a, a lot of text on the web. I mean, there's a yeah, lot more yeah. information out there. There is, the yeah, there is. Um, um, and I, but I always think about this as like some alien with a giant brain that's just tapped into our internet, studied all of this text, and has now come down to speak to us, um, in our language, <laughs> and we're having conversations with it, and it's, and it's assimilating, it very well, um, and then it has something to teach us, right? At least we think it might. <laughs> we want to learn from it. And so we're all talking to it now, trying to learn what it knows, but it's really just regurgitating what we already know back to us um, in new ways and sharing and kind of maybe in a way making us more one. Um, maybe that's like a positive way of thinking about it. Um, the other way to think about it is that, you know, maybe maybe most of us think that a bigger brain is a better brain a smarter brain is a better brain but there's maybe another way to say that you know nature may not think that may nature may not think that we're the top of the mountain nature may think that brains are right sized there's a right size for an environment and that sometimes less complex is actually better and that those creatures will live longer and it sort of depends on the rules in which you decide what makes a species the top of, you know, like we're making the rules for what determines what the top of the, you know, of the, of the chain of the pyramid is. And then we're declaring ourselves the winner. But what if, 
what if complexity and more complexity is not the dominant force? What if there's a tipping point and there's a right sizing of intelligence? Um, I know that gets kind of weird, but uh, no, no, not weird at all. Um, I, I mean, I, I've definitely thought quite a lot about about the issues that you're raising as well, um, and have a few observations. Excellent. Um, one of them is that the idea that, um, well, first of all, our our brains have been shrinking for the last few hundred yeah, thousand sorry, years. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, Neanderthals had had uh, bigger brains than we did by by about the mm-hmm. size of a baby's fist. Um, and there are a lot of theories about why that might be. Uh, one of them that I'm kind of partial to is that they kind of had to be jacks of all trades. They had to be geniuses at a lot of things in order to get by because everybody was a generalist. Um, and in our specialization, uh, we actually need less individual intelligence to make it, uh, you know, because we are relying much more on division of labor. In other words, we, we've traded off, um, you know, individual competency for collective competency. Uh, and of course that collective competency is way greater than what the, than what the Neanderthals had. This gets back to population size being right. at least as important in terms of scaling intelligence as, you know, how many neurons an individual right. brain has got. A bigger brain then is, isn't, isn't the point a bigger brain through connectivity yeah is the point yeah because then you get exponential growth then you get right then you get you don't have to you know walk around the earth not fitting through doorways right because we're just all connected um that's an interesting concept so then how would you measure the degree of our connectivity since neanderthals and and you go well look at Look at our technology and what that's done to our connectivity. Look at us right, right. now connecting. Exactly. Um, so, so maybe the growth that connectivity is better, not the size of your brain or complexity of the individual brain, but the connectivity of it. And then seeing how AI plays into facilitating that connectivity is where we start to realize that it itself is not the amazing thing and it having a huge brain is not the amazing thing but its capability to use that brain to connect us better with each other and how can we focus on those use cases us in the ai world how can we tap into that um and and, you know in a a beneficial way Uh, we do have to understand what what the substance of connectivity is then you know i have this opinion that creativity and co-creation is is the substance or the you know that's lots of talking is a creative exercise and us not being repetitive and reading from a script over and over again but us riffing off each other is co-creation and that this is what an access whether we're drawing together talking together um what are your thoughts around around what is the connectivity? What is the thing? Like we talk about connection, yeah. but what is that? What, if you were to measure that or, or, or see it or describe it, what is that? I mean, I, I agree with everything you've just said. It's really about our relationships. Uh, you know, when, when we think about connectivity today, we think about the internet and what, what we're doing right now, which is basically making a little a bigger brain, you know, out of the four of us, right? Um, but, but long before we had the internet, um, we had urbanization. Uh, you know, and urbanization brought a lot of people together uh, at densities far higher than than they had been able to exist before, which in turn created technologies, which in turn allowed much much larger numbers of people to live on Earth than could live before. 
in a, and it's a loop. It's a positive feedback loop. So that's that exponential growth, you know, in, in not only in human numbers, but in intelligence, uh, in that, in that collective sense. Um, and you know, if you start to analyze, you know, what are the, um, what does it mean to be creative for instance, or, you know, how does, how does that work? Um, you know, in, especially in, in modern Western thought, I think we're very used to the idea that it's all individual, you know, like there's a, there's an individual creative genius and they come up with stuff. But, um, in reality, uh, I think that, you know, and this maybe comes back to your very first question. Like, you know, I, I read a lot, you know, and insofar as I come up with ideas, a lot of it has to do with the people that I talk to in the books that I read. Um, you know, every idea is sort of a remix of things that, uh, that, that a person has experienced already. And this is why you get the weird phenomenon of multiple simultaneous discovery. Uh, you know, like take any invention, any artistic movement, uh, you know, any, any, any discovery. And, and if you dig into it, you realize that a dozen people invented the same thing around the same time. Uh, like the light bulb is a classic example. I think there were a couple of dozen people who all invented the light bulb. Why, why then, why at that moment? It's almost like everybody was right. telepathically connected. Yeah. But the reason is that you can't have a light bulb if you can't blow glass, make a vacuum, right. draw filaments, have electricity. You know, and once all of those things are there, then, you know, it's just like putting another Jenga piece, you know, on, on right. top. And, and, and in a way, all of our brains are just the crucibles where those ingredients combine. Right. It's like uh, mathematics. It, we don't invent mathematics. Yeah. We discover it. And we discover right. it based on mathematics before it. Exactly. It's the exactly. building blocks. It's the next natural thing. Someone was going to discover the light bulb. There was no... Totally. It was the next step it was in gonna the staircase. Happen. It was inevitable. Yeah. That's and right. LLMs no, that, that is the next that step. That doesn't mean... Um, Elos are the next step to it, and and they're doing the same thing. By the way, okay. uh, I should say, you know, this doesn't. What I'm saying doesn't imply that people don't matter or that the individual doesn't matter. You know, I mean, even take something stupid like the light bulb. You know, you ask a seemingly trivial question like, well, how many volts does it run on? You know, are the threads clockwise or counterclockwise, right. or are there prongs? You know, and so on. Uh, you know, the particular invention that won out, you know, which was one person's decisions, ended up having this long, long effect through history. So it doesn't mean that individuals don't matter, right. but it does mean that it was bound to happen They too. They, they know, matter in true. terms of the timeline, you know, in terms of yeah. how quickly, when... And the details. Yeah, and the details, yeah. Yeah. Right. But but yeah, LLMs are doing this now too. I mean, they're, they're uh, you know, we say like, oh, they're, they're, they're just regurgitating stuff. Um, uh, it's it's not quite true. Uh, you know, there, there was actually just a, a paper uh, published a couple of days ago about, uh, you know, LLM that had a bunch of genomic information, uh, you know, you just ask it about, uh, you know, about some, some genetic disease or correlation It came, it came up with a connection that had not been, uh, noticed before. So like, you know, this is a, an, an early, um, biomedical discovery, you know, done by yeah. a chatbot. I oversimplified this to say words have purpose and the purpose is to describe ideas. So behind words are ideas, especially groups of words. Right. And so if you regurgitate our words, you are regurgitating our ideas. If you jumble up our words using temperature and you, and you create some randomization, but within a narrow scope of randomization, not too random, not, not full mutations, but just iterative mutations, like within that range, then what you're doing is you're coming up with new ideas because you're coming up with new combinations of ideas and chaining them together. And so of course, if you're going to if you're going to increase the temperature and you're going to randomize to some degree the ideas and the chain of ideas, you're going to those chains make up other ideas, and of course we're going to discover new ideas. Some of them bad, exactly. some of them good, just like evolution. Exactly. Um, 
and then we'll decide. And, if and the more the more there are, the faster the faster it goes because there's an exponential process implied by that. Right. right, there are more materials around to recombine. Yeah. So if we're looking at LLMs as another stair in the staircase, right? Somewhere below that's the light bulb, and you know, um, the next step in the staircase. What's the next obvious? I, now, obviously, we would have dis- discovered it already, but do you have any hypothesis as to what is the next step? In that staircase, the next obvious thing <laughs> that's not so obvious. Oof, I really don't know. You know, I I think that I think that being able to base intelligence in silicon is such a huge one. Mm. Uh, you know that that it's a little hard to see past in the sense that I think it I think it really changes a lot of things. Um, uh, you know about about our our collective inventive capacity and creative capacity and so on. So this one is just like it's a really big change. Um, there's certainly a lot of a lot of practical problems, um, you know, some of which uh, are pretty existentially important for us, and some of which just afford wonderful new opportunities that more intelligence can really crack. Uh, I'm talking about things like, uh, for instance, uh, you know, the opportunities in medicine, right? Medicine, you know, our bodies are very very complex systems. Uh, you know, AI is really good at uh, at at, um, at sort of. Uh, Understanding complex systems and, and and postulating engineering solutions and so on that we wouldn't have come up with, hence the discovery you know that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, medicine, material science, uh, things like uh, you know uh, new metabolisms, breaking down PFOS, you know other other contaminants, plastics, um, or for that matter, making new materials. Um, you know, those are pretty obvious yeah. uh, applications that I'm sure we're going to see. Uh, you know, sci-fi writers have been writing for a long time about um, you know what what would what would happen if we had a space elevator? If we had, you know, like a really strong material that would allow you to just, you know, literally build a, uh, you know, build an elevator that goes into space? I mean, the only reason that that is a, a pipe dream is because we don't have the right material. Uh, does that mean the right material doesn't exist? Probably the right material does exist, and we may be able to make such materials in not very long. So, you know, the, the possibilities are pretty are pretty huge, yeah. and um, and, and we're going to have to live. You know, live through the next years to see what they what they are because I think they're very hard. Yeah. To well, that's interesting. I, th- I think that that almost makes it feel like your 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 new book, "Who Are We Now," is is especially timely, right? Because not only are we kind of culturally at a moment where people's identities are being sort of attacked and questioned, uh, we're also in this moment where where we're seeing people react to this to generative AI and new technology as like a replacement, right? Like it's like threatening my identity as a worker, as someone who's productive. And then we're also kind of to go back, I guess, to Ubisoft, where even those of us who kind of know how they work, we can't help some, but sometimes project an identity onto these systems. So, yeah. so maybe this is important work, right? Like I think you said that your book was designed to kind of blow up the notion of identity. Like, does getting close to that or doing that kind of free us to make some of the kind of discoveries that you're talking about now? Yeah, I desperately hope so. Um, because I, I feel like uh, you know we we have now um, you know we're in the Anthropocene. Right, we're in an era where our actions are affecting everything uh, in our in our biological environment. Uh, the Earth is finite, and without the kind of solidarity where we start to think about the whole thing as our body, as it were, uh, we're kind of screwed. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think that's and and, and it's it's uh, the thing that really worries me about the moment that we're in, uh, and the kind of identity politics that I that I've been seeing playing out increasingly is that because of that sense of threat, and that threat could be. About AI, the threat could be about um, uh, about political others. It could be about migrants. It could be about people whose sexualities we don't understand. You know, whatever it is, like we're in a period of rising 
of xenophobia uh, and rising identity politics and insul insularity about you know who who we are and who they are, who are other, and that feels like really the wrong direction to go uh, if if we're going to thrive together. Uh, you know, a, a cancer is what happens in the body when a group of cells, uh, you know, decide that they're not in solidarity with the rest of the cells in your body. And, and, and that's, that's where I fear we are, uh, you know, in danger of, of becoming. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting. It's, it's a connectivity challenge. I, we might look back in history and think that the LLM and AI was accelerated due to COVID because like that moment of disconnection and then this, this amazing discovery happens that hopefully in the future becomes the biggest asset towards bringing us together and connecting humans to each other in a way that never, maybe has never been seen in history. Maybe in such a way that's, that's just unprecedented. Um, but I can't think, I can't help but think that like, and to your point, Josh, and, and, and what you were talking about earlier, this idea of climbing the ladder to the next invention, to the next invention and looking upward at the next thing. And that we're looking upward and I'm, and I've asked a number of people, what's the next thing? And a lot of people are like, I'm not sure. And I either because the next thing's not obvious because we're, maybe we're entering the world of productivity abundance and that you got to look sideways now. Like it's not, it's not up anymore. It's over there and over there might be mm -hmm. not being more productive as humans, but being better connected and being, you know, happier and I use that word as knowing it's a super complex word, not in a simple term, but us just yeah. being more fulfilled in life. And that's, that's a sideways look like, because the next thing isn't up, it's over. Um, and yeah. yeah. And like maybe in the future, the question, someone asked the question is who invented the light bulb? The answer is like, well, there were a lot of people working <laughs> on it at the same time. Here's how they each contributed. It's not Thomas Edison because right. I think now our compulsion, maybe it's a, a capitalistic thing is to like, Who's lionized the, the individual who conquers yeah. everything, right? Like, right. And, and, you know, if you, if drunk history is to be believed, Edison was like <laughs> kind of a dick, right? So it's like, yeah. it's like, why are we elevating these sort of monsters? Well, a, a, lot of, a lot of the reason that we know about the invention, about the, these, you know, the multiple invention of the light bulb because of the patent battles that, that, uh, you know, that ensued. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, and of course, it's humanity that invented the light bulb, right? That's right. we invented the light bulb. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I really like both of your comments about this. And, you know, to, to me, um, the end of growth is sort of, uh, you know, one of the underlying concepts there. Uh, and and I, I mean that in a couple of ways. Uh, I guess we could talk about demographic growth and we could talk about economic growth. Uh -huh. um, you know, it, as far as de demographics, you know, up until very, very recently, um, the total fertility rate of humanity, which, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of the, the new book, you know, is, is, is all about sort of the connection between reproductive futurism and sexuality and, and, and you know, population growth and so on. You know, we've been in this kind of exponential and super exponential rise in human numbers. And, um, you know, basically we were trying to reproduce as fast as we could and our numbers were being kept in check by mortality, you know, by, by, by getting, by, by dying in childbirth and, and, and of other causes. And, uh, and then suddenly the lid lifted on that. It's like we escaped planet Darwin and, and suddenly our numbers were unchecked and our growth was unchecked. And, and it looked for a little while in the 20th century, like we were headed for a huge crisis in which we would, uh, you know, overpopulate the earth and, and die off in a dramatic way. But what we've actually seen happen is that fertility rates go down a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, now in the developed world, the fertility rates are so low that we're seeing a dramatic population, exponential population decline. 
which is great news in terms of, you know, of, of survivability on earth. But it also means that a lot of the assumptions about unchecked growth change. And, and the same is true in the economic regime. Yeah. Uh, and this, this is something that, uh, that, that Keynes, the, the economist like in the, in the, in the 20s and 30s, understood really well. He was talking about post-scarcity you know, long before mm -hmm. uh, you know, this century and saying like, yeah, we'll all be working you know, um, uh, three-day work weeks and uh, you know, we'll just have all this leisure and we'll all become right. artists and we'll be able to spend time with our friends. And instead, uh, what, what's happened is that our obsession with economic growth has meant that we've created what David Graeber called a bunch of bullshit jobs for each other right. and immiserated each other. But in fact, we have enough, right? We have we have everything that we need, uh, and there are still people who are who are poor and who are struggling, and there are still people who are who are, who are wasteful and want more and more. And you know, at some level, like if we, what we don't if we don't realize that this is a this is a, a metabolism problem, right? And that and that just like any organism, you know, it's about how to achieve um, uh, how to achieve balance, right? Regulating. I think I think we're really in trouble. Regulating, right? not maximizing. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like any organism after it's after it grows, right? There's a growth phase, uh -huh. and then there's a steady state that comes after that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's not a new idea, but it, we've never faced it so imminently. Like the opportunity yeah. for abundance in a way that is inarguable. Like it's it's clear that at least for a large population of people, abundance is is on the horizon. <laughs> yes. Yes, and if we were if we were more equitable about about distributing, it would uh, be for the, everyone. The, yeah, the gains it would be for everybody easily already. Yeah, today. So I, this comes into contrast for me with an idea, and I haven't reconciled this fully. But you know, you always look at a tree that grows is, grows to a certain point. Now, granted, it's got an optimal stopping, so perhaps I'm answering my own question here. But um, it fractals its way up, and it doesn't care about the plants down below that die in the shade, right? It's going to take as much of the resources as it can, and it doesn't care what the consequences to any other living creature is. Um, now, sort of the anti-giving tree. Now, I'm, this is me oversimplifying because there's mycelium, and then there's a whole other layer to talk about. But right, right, <laughs> but right. Let's let's just entertain me for a second here and say that as humans, we tend to try to use up as much resources as we can as a way to peacock ourselves around and I guess what reproduce like, is that <laughs> like, look how many resources I use. Don't you want to have babies with me? Um, and your point is, but we're not having more babies, but we're still wanting to be wanted. It's like, I want you to want to have a baby with me, but I don't want to actually have it. <laughs> right. But I don't want to change the nappies. Right. Um, right. Right. So at some point um, you're like, well, then what's the resource thing all about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, I, I think that we, we tend to view evolution through a very, um, and not just through Darwin's perspective, because Darwin, you know, was, was a lot richer in his thinking than I think is generally assumed, but more like Spencer almost social Darwinism kind of thing. Everything is selfish. Everything is about, you know, survival of the fittest and death to everything else. But that's actually not how things work. Um, Peter Kropotkin wrote a, a book called Mutual Aid, uh, which was an alternative take on Darwinism in like 1902 or so. And he really emphasized the cooperative and mutualistic aspects of evolution, which are just as important. You know, um, we, we only survive by virtue of many, many other things on earth surviving. Right. Um, you know, for, you know, it doesn't matter how selfish you are. 
uh, you know, if you if you deplete your ecosystem to the point where um, where you can't survive, you're screwed. Right. Um, so you know, we we thrive precisely by um, uh, by sharing. Right. You know, you you give to get, and you get more than you give when you give. Uh, this is, yeah, I, I think that that actually a lot of indigenous people, you know, have understood this for a long time. This is why, um, uh, you know, uh, book, books like um, uh, um, Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer and so on are so powerful. They really, you know, describe a different way of thinking about ecological relationships that is, frankly, more accurate than uh, you know than that kind of like endless accumulation, winner takes all. You know, just harvest the whole thing. Um, you know, that, that that a lot of people have intuitively understood for a really long time. If you think, yeah, it seems like there's a compulsion to like we don't we don't want like AGI to emerge and necessarily. I guess now I'm seeing that it could be a reflection of the natural world, but we certainly wouldn't want it to be reflective of our understanding of the natural world through the eyes of Darwin, right? Like we don't want it to be or that competitive and that resource yeah. hungry. Like yeah. it, you'd want the converse, right? Yeah. You'd want it to be extremely yeah. cooperative and yeah, and plugged into sort of this greater. Yeah, it's like now now we have to bring mycelium into the conversation, right? Because it's about time. Because you have to know that these trees and other organisms do communicate and are connected and are coordinating and they do and even even with each other with by each the way. other not, not just uh, right right even even with the same species they, they cooperate as well as computer right and and that we we see that connectivity is really the future of thought yeah. here um totally and, and and by the way uh cooperate cooperation and uh and and competition they're not really distinct Right, uh, you know, like we are, our, our neurons compete to form wiring in the brain, and and then a bunch of connections and neurons die, you know, early early on in development, and yet, of course, at the same time, they're cooperating to make something big. Right. So those things, I, I think that we draw a distinction more on emotional grounds than on mathematical grounds. They actually look very similar when you when you look at what's going on. Yeah, everything comes back to Buddhism, doesn't it? It's like the, it's like, you know, pop, healthy competition, not. Any like not the not just competition, but healthy, balanced competition, healthy, balanced human beings, healthy, balanced connectivity. Um, but it does. I agree with you in that. What the world's deficient of right now is not so much, and of course I'm speaking broadly, but not so much the scarcity of of our basic needs, but the scarcity of our connectivity. That's and not just that we're not connected, but the quality of that, it's the, it's the, it's the health food of connectivity, not the junk food of connectivity. Right. Right. The, I, I've used the word often solidarity for that, ah, meaning, like meaning that you feel, you feel for others and you're out, you're, you're kind of on one, t- you're, you're, you're on team them, right. you know, as well, as well as just, uh, you know, out for yeah. yourself. So um, there's this world of cooperation, I think, you know, that, yeah. that is that right place. And, do you, do you think I'm trying to go to like how AI, our new God that we will worship is going to, is going <laughs> to, um, is going to help us connect better on that. It's like be more cooperative in how, how we do business, how we live, how we coexist as countries with each other, with everything that's going on right now in the world, it's hard. It, it really is, it does live in contrast of this cooperation mentality, right? There's, and, and maybe it's, it's that you have to break things to heal things, right? So I'd, let's set that complexity aside for a second and say, maybe that's what's happening. Um, maybe we're resolving sores that just 
have been festering. But um, but how, what do you make of that? That that in some ways connectivity is is as bad as it's always been. Yeah, I, I mean it's a it's a high stakes gamble if we say like oh we've got to break it to fix it. I mean I I know you know. Um, I think Zizek like was you know basically a pro Trump because he was like yeah he'll break it and then and then we can fix it mm. I don't know I, it's it's a little bit of a scary road to yeah go down. I agree because but you um, don't know if you can it's like lighting a yeah, forest fire you don't fire. know if you can you don't know if you can put right. it out. it's easy to light it right exactly yep. um, so so I, I don't know but um, I, I I guess um, I will so I mean as as far as concrete examples go of like you know how can how can AI help with connectivity well um, I mean. At, at risk of going too much into like literal minded, you know, sort of product thinking, uh, if you imagine that we all have um, AIs that you know that are augmenting our ability to communicate with each other and connect and so on, um, think about the number of, um, I guess, win-win situations that um, that could obtain if you and the and the needs of all of the people uh, around you in your immediate vicinity, you know, uh, could somehow be match made. A little better, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, oh, like you know, you two are both are both single, like literally matchmaking, right? Uh-huh. Or, or like you know, you you two should really meet, or you should discuss this thing, or you know, like you need a job, and, and yeah. this person has got you know has got the right thing, yeah. or you know, this per- this one needs help, you know, with her like morning right. shift at the at the at the bakery. Oh, yeah. this one like you know really like needs a little bit of you know. So or the wingman, right? Like the wingman yeah. for people to like like for me, right? If I'm if I'm in a party situation i'm pretty quiet yeah like it takes someone to break the ice maybe an ai is there to 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 connect me with someone that i would have a good conversation with if i could just you know relax be a little more extroverted yeah Yeah. yeah. and so (laughs) it'll just wingman and go over there and say hey you guys should chat about feels like in that sense in that sense too they could almost be like little empathy engines too right like they don't exist just to like I mean, they could help you navigate a party, but they could also like help you form better connections with the people at that party. And Absolutely. in that sense, it might kind of open a new paradigm for experiencing the world. And, then, and I wonder like what would even happen to, like we, we cling mightily, I think, to the idea of individuality and, yeah. and you know, you can point to all your achievements and this and that, but does that, I mean, it feels like that has a bit of currency to it now, but I wonder if that then starts to diminish too, as you just, it becomes less important what you achieved on your own when you're connected to this matrix of like, not only understanding how you've contributed to other people's lives, but how you've made them feel better, right. help them through yeah. certain problems and how they've actually reciprocated. Exactly. Of, of mutual care, mutual aid, uh, yeah. effectively. Yeah. And I, I know I sound a little, a little communist when I talk about these things, but I, I mean it in a way that is as that is inclusive right. Right, of, uh-huh. of both of both cooperation and competition. Yeah. Uh, but in a, in a way that in a way that 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 doesn't leave uh, doesn't leave people behind that doesn't have, that has like these these basics yeah. of care. Um, and um, and yeah, I think that's all within reach. That's all possible. And yes, intelligence, uh, you know, can absolutely help to make to bring that about. So you know, I, I don't feel like um, like uh, AI is is uh, is a problem. I think it's a potential massive solution. Right. I do think that the way we've organized capitalism uh, is is likely a problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it's it's sometimes been talked about in the same way as democracy. It's like a terrible idea, but it's better than the alternative. Well, maybe there are more alternatives. You know, maybe maybe there there's the design space is bigger yeah. than we've allowed ourselves. Or there's to a think cooperation about. component. It's it's not black right. or white. It's not it's not communism or or capitalism. It's 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 cooperation. It's a middle ground. Um, yep. 
and there's yeah i'm 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 exactly. still digging out of this my that ai is the mycelium for humans i'm <laughs> i'm i'm in love with this idea because i think Me if too. people in the world could start to see it behave towards humanity and serve us in that way i think they would be as optimistic as i am about it um yeah. Well, yeah, if they're feeling that connection too, the way you'd imagine like a tree into like innately can sense that connection to all the fungal bodies and all the, you know, the other plant life in the forest, like and then it, we're maybe, maybe we have that capacity, but we're certainly don't always seem to be tapped into it. No, we're very spotty about how we, about how we use it, how we tap into it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, that's the big see, opportunity. Yeah, yeah. AI kind of bringing us to that place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was a great chat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed myself. What a, what a wonderful conversation! What, what great, what great questions and observations! Awesome, awesome! Oh, thank you so much for sharing your time yeah. with us, Blaze. This was really fun. This is really my it. pleasure. This is great. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts, so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.